Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. I tell you the truth, just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. Matthew 25, verse 40. We have a crash. It is beautifully carved and includes the three kings, even though in our tradition they don't show up until January the 6th. This verse, although it's at the other end of Matthew's Gospel, telling of the Nativity and the arrival of the wise men, shows us how important the birth of the child Jesus was to these three learned men. As a baby, he'd be counted as one of the least, wouldn't he? They didn't ignore him as a mere baby, but paid homage to him as a king with gold, frankincense and myrrh. My son works with his wife at a restaurant bar in a trendy part of town. The other evening, a young homeless person was inside watching the game on TV, and after 15 minutes, he was moved on by the boss. When my son was telling me, I told him I understood that homeless people weren't good for business, but he said he didn't see the harm as he was only watching TV. In fact, the staff had ordered him pretzel bread and a glass of water, but he still had to leave. My son saw him out in the cold later. It was a bitter evening. His wife handed handed over her sweatshirt with a fleecy down hood to give to him. Simon said he pulled it on immediately and was so grateful. My two lovely married people noticed Jesus in that homeless man. It made me think I should carry around season-appropriate clothing to give out when I see the need at busy intersections, for example. We saw the homeless man who hangs out at our local library the other day, still there, wearing everything he owns. When the children were young, we used to give him gift certificates to the local restaurants like McDonald's so that he could get a cup of coffee. How many of us would open our warm homes over the holidays to a homeless person who may love to share our fire, our food and our stories? I'm going to pray for the opportunity to do just that this year, because helping the poor was very important to Jesus. Just read the Gospels. Hello, welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler. My name is Vivian McNenny, and I'm here to dispel any preconceived ideas you may have about what educating your children at home looks like. It can be straightforward school or no school at all. It can involve world travel or a comfy seat on the couch. It can be in pursuit of passions or simply hanging out in a tree. Homeschooling can be embarked upon for a number of reasons, too. A physically challenged child or parent, the threat of bullies and overwhelming peer pressure, a particularly brilliant child who is bored in kindergarten, a conflict in religious teachings, or a desire for the family closeness missing in your upbringing. For me, it's a lifestyle that suits the maverick lurking within. I wanted to be the one who saw the light bulbs go on. I wanted to be there at turning points in my children's lives. I didn't want to hand them over to folk who weren't their mother, and I wanted to make my own decisions about how to raise my children. On this show, I've spoken to a wide range of the homeschooling mothers, fathers and graduates who find education opportunities everywhere and thrive. I've moved in and out of my comfort zones too. God and children will do that. I've gained insights and delights that I'm happy to share with you. 
With or without my children underfoot, my life is often ordinary, always busy, and sometimes a roller coaster. But for me, it starts and ends with God, the discovery of a treadmill in a safe workout place, the cardinal's morning call, the sound of heat pouring forth in my flat, the smell of freshly baked cinnamon rolls, a serious hug, or sunlight dappling the courtyard. If you pop by, I'll offer you a hot chocolate and a biscuit. But I know you're out there, and I'm in here in my flat, broadcasting from Garland, Texas. I'm bringing you Dr. Klaus Dieter John this week as my guest. I managed to talk to him for a few minutes during this during his month in America, promoting the twenty-one million dollar modern hospital in Peru he and his wife envisioned and opened debt-free a couple of years ago. Stay tuned for Dr. Klaus Dieter John and his work with the poor after the first break. I'm all set, so grab whatever it is you're drinking and let me engage you with the latest and greatest from the household of the McNinnies, where we greeted the new year quietly as usual, as celebrating Dort's twenty-third birthday today. Happy birthday, Malia! And looking over the past year, trying to make sense of where it went. I'm all set. Are you ready? Happy New Year! Here we are in 2015, and shoot, where did all the time go? It hardly seems. Like yesterday, since we were counting down the hours from the twentieth century into the twenty-first, and now we're old hands at writing the twenty-something instead of nineteen-something. It's Malia's birthday today, also known as Dorts. She's a shining star in our midst, and I miss her a lot. Her apartment seems to be so far away, even though it's part of the metroplex of sorts. It's a good forty minutes away, about thirty miles. Too far to text and say, "Going to a movie? Want to come?" I really hope her colleagues and other people she spends time with appreciate her like I do. We're having a special dinner for her tonight with the other family members. Her big brother has already returned to California, but we had a super time with him. More about that later. My baby is growing up, and my favorite thing to do as a homeschooler at the beginning of each year was to look back. We call it reminiscing, not so much living in the past as enjoying the wonderful year we've just lived through, with its inevitable ups and downs. How many of you think, "What did I do last year?" and then draw a blank as each day presents itself as ordinary? I keep a diary that I write each night to give me a heads up as to what I was doing, and very often I'll keep last year's beside me at my desk so I can sneak a peek at what was going on this time last year. Going over the past year helps me balance the anticipation and unknowns of the coming year. For some reason, it allows me to unwind and not fret so much because looking back at where I've been helps me soften into where I'm going, even if I don't know what the new year holds. I'll get through it if I remember who's at the helm. It's when I try to wrench the controls away that things start to go wrong, and I'll get through it if I remember who's in my heart, which in my body lies at the pit of my stomach most of the time, which of course is the ancient centre where all the emotions spring from. Last year we were in Lindale, enjoying my mother-in-law's ranch house with our suite of rooms. I became very secluded there, as I didn't like the grocery store, and I never went into the large town. So I let my cowboy go out on his own, and I stayed home and wrote and read. I very often say what a solitary life I'd leave, lead if it weren't for my children and my steadfast Texan. By the time Ash Wednesday rolled around, my mother-in-law had decided to move in with her youngest son and his wife. I have an angel for a sister-in-law, and I've told her that. 
It fell to us to organize the move, the clearing out, the estate sale, and the emotions. She worked at Walmart up until two weeks before the move, and then she was busy packing up all she wanted to take to her one room, the bathroom, and the potential of a large sitting room, but not immediately. The move went flawlessly. We rented a truck and used my nephew's pickup, and then went back to the house and cleaned it in preparation for the estate sale. Now my mother-in-law is settled and has a living room where she's bought two recliners for her television. She's been to physiotherapy to strengthen her legs. For some reason, the standing she had to do as a greeter at Walmart did something to her muscles and she had to rebuild them if she wanted to feel confident about getting up and down the stairs, which she does now. Her job in the house is to keep the kitchen clean. My cowboy, through hours of talking and negotiating on the phone and yards of paperwork, finally managed to sell the house and get her a veteran's pension from her late husband. That was thrilling, as so now she feels that she can contribute financially to the household and doesn't feel as much of a burden. We spent the month of May in a hotel. Well, no, actually, we spent the month of April in a hotel, once again totally homeless, and then we took a four-month stay in Florida, where we walked two dogs several times a day. I wrote, and my Texan fished for alligators and worked wonders with wood. We had a lovely time, but the reality had to come upon us once again, as we realized we weren't getting another house-sitting assignment any time soon, and we had to buckle down and get us an apartment and really start looking for property, which we have got an apartment, that is. Looking for property is another story. Those agents are all talk. Plus, I enjoy being close enough to our children for them to pop in and out. I don't know about being too far away on land. I'm sure God's chuckling, knowing full well what lies in store for us, and I for one am eager for the reveal. Our oldest son moved to L.A. in June, and it wasn't until our return to Dallas in September that we felt the full impact of him not being around. We went to see him in October and discovered a good online service called Airbnb. We had a lovely week in someone else's house, only seven minutes from Ian's apartment, and we cooked for him, met his friends, did a lot of touristy things like being a studio audience at a taping, taking a tour of Warner Brothers, visiting two museums, and we almost went to see the Groundlings, and that's another story I've not told yet. And I recorded a show for one of his podcasts called Beats and Eats, an inside look at people he thinks he knows really well but doesn't. I was able to tell him a couple of stories about my life he hadn't heard before. <laughs> he returned the favour by visiting for ten days over the holidays and chatting to me for a future show. I'll do more on that later too. We used to have the whole house in a storage unit, well, storage unit or two, and now with our move to the flat, which has an attached garage, I had the brilliant idea of closing down the units and bringing everything home under one roof. At first it didn't look as if that would work, but then I started unpacking some of the china and other kitchen utensils and found that with a few trips back and forth we were able to get a lot of our furniture in the flat and there's more than enough room in the garage for the boxed stuff. So for the first time in 19 months everything we own is under one roof. There were panic station moments while we were doing the endless trips back and forth and I felt like a hoarder, but not anymore. All the attic stuff is important, schoolwork, baby book stuff and history. Everything else is needed to set up home again sometime in the future. There are lots of dogs in the complex, I've noticed, and a pretty set of walkways to stroll along. We overlook a courtyard of lawn and trees. It's very pleasant, and I plan to get to know someone with a dog to ask if I can take it for a walk every afternoon along the wooded trail that runs behind the buildings. 
I don't know how safe it is to walk there by myself, and I really shouldn't find out. We have two workout rooms, so if worse comes to worse, I'll take to the treadmill. Perhaps I can spend an hour reading and walking. Our location has us in the middle of shopping heaven. We have a Sam's, a Walmart, Target, Sonic, gas stations, office max, two banks, restaurants, and we're only a hop, skip and a jump from the toll road that'll take us every which way. I suggested to my blue-eyed cowboy that we enjoy living close to family and friends, theatre and cinemas, art galleries and malls. If we're going to move to the country, then we should take advantage of this urban setting while we're here. We're close to our church too, and not far from the one with the magnificent choir. I don't know where we're going to go from here. We have another assignment in Florida at the end of June, and I'm happy to wait on God's time. It's rather unsettling not having a permanent home, but at least the flat feels comfortable and we have some of our old familiar stuff around us. As I say, every year if I can live through 2014 and tell the tale, I can live through 2015 too. It's the unknown that has me all topsy-turvy, but it can be exciting too. I'll just tap God on the shoulder and say, hey, fancy a tropical island this year? Happy New Year to all of you. Stay calm and carry on. And it's break time. Before I go, I need to tell you to hang tight because I'm bringing you a conversation I recorded with Dr. Klaus Dieter John a couple of weeks ago while he was presenting his missionary project to hundreds of people in Texas, Colorado and California before heading back home to Peru for Christmas with his family. Dr. Klaus doesn't ask for money, and yet his non-profit organization received $21 million during his construction of a modern hospital for the desperately poor in the Andes of Peru. The hospital opened debt-free and operates without credit, relying on donations from companies and individuals around the world who hear about the Diospi Suyana, the name of the hospital meaning In God We Trust. You'll be heartened to hear this wonderful man speak to me of his faith, the worries and stress, and the hurdles he had to surmount to bring the vision he and his wife Martina had to bring medical help to the overlooked poor in Peru. Come back in just a moment, and we'll be talking with Dr. Klaus. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Mark Lipinski is coming to Toginet. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski, a live two-hour show Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Creative Mojo. It's fun, entertaining, informative, inspirational, and illuminating. Lipinski has worked on such shows as Oprah, The View, The Joan Rivers Show, and Ricky Lake. He's busy, but he's got the drive to share with Creative Mojo, dedicated to the modern crafter and crafting lifestyle. Dive into the info and enjoy everything from celebs to entertainment news to recipes, quilting and needlework, knitting, painting, woodworking, Christmas crafts, and so much more. This show boldly encourages you to discover and harness your own creative spirit by living creatively every day. For more on Mark and the show, check out marklepinski.com. Don't miss the fun. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski. Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. 
On my show today, I have German doctor Klaus Dieter-John joining me to talk about Diospi Suyana, a hospital in the Peruvian Andes that he and his wife Martina envisioned many years ago. Their story is filled with God incidences, faith and tenacity, since not everyone thought the same way they did. My friend Marsha Washburn introduced us and Dr. Klaus has found time in his very busy schedule to talk to me about the work he and Martina are doing in the isolated villages of Peru where over 10 million people live. Together they shared a vision to serve some of the poorest and most neglected people in South America. They are both qualified in surgery and pediatrics and were inspired to take on the task of raising huge sums of money and building not just a health center but a fully equipped hospital. The story of their journey from the original dream to completion is littered with miracles, as you will hear, and also chronicled in the book, I Have Seen God, which tells their story and the story of the Diospi Suyana Hospital serving the Peruvian Indians. Welcome, Dr. Klaus, to my show this afternoon. Yes, hello. It's great talking to you. Well, thank you. And I know you have been very busy. Tell us a little bit about why you're here in North America and not in Peru at the moment. I, I do a lot of traveling. In fact, six months every year, I, I'm abroad and I share our testimony with Christians and non-Christians. I talk in, in churches, companies, uh, charity clubs, but to the press, mm-hmm. to the media. And I just tell the whole world that God did this hospital through his miracles and that we have to take God seriously. He's there and he, he, it works while praying to him. Mm-hmm. Well, you say that you spend six months traveling, sharing this story and talking, and that's taking you away from your vocation, which obviously is medicine. But it's something that you, you have to do to keep you know, the, the vision out there and to keep people informed. How do you feel about doing that? I started um, with my travels uh, in, in 2004. There was nothing mm-hmm. to be shown in Peru. We had no money, we had no equipment, no co-workers, no missionaries. And uh, my wife and I, we set out. And first we started our, our presentations in German-speaking countries. And then we went to other countries as well. Now in South America, North America, Canada. And, um, you know, it has become sort of my calling because to people who never go to church, I can tell them a very convincing story that um, they realize it is everybody's truthful. There have been so many secretary-written teams in Kuravasi taping the whole thing, um, visiting us. And um, but we never ask for money, but we share. And But as a result of this, uh, of these talks, many people want to be part of it. They start praying for us. They're interested in becoming missionaries themselves. And obviously people also support us through financial gifts. But uh, we don't ask for money. You, you don't ask for any money, and the money just comes, at, obviously, comes, yes. has been flowing into this project. In our policy, 10 years ago, we never spent money we don't have. It's very similar to George Müller. He was a, a German gentleman who founded an orphanage 150 years ago in Bristol, England. He never mm-hmm. asked for money either, but he prayed. Okay. Well, you and your wife have known each other for a long time. You've known each other since high school. Tell us a little bit about that. Very, very interesting. I met Tina when she was 16. I was 17. It was 37 years ago, as you said. And mm-hmm. um, well, we met um, at school. 
had not seen it before, interesting enough, although I had gone to the same school for several years, but suddenly mm-hmm. we had seven courses together in seven classes. And um, I asked her, what, what is your dream in life? And she said, well, it's my vision eventually to study medicine and to work as a doctor in a third world country lifelong. Wow. And uh, this was for me, well, qu- uh, quite a revelation because when I was a teenager, 13, 14, 15, I read books by certain Australian doctor, Paul White. He went to Africa, he served as a missionary, went back to his home country, and then he published books on his African experience. Mm-hmm. And, and I read his books and I thought, wow, that's something for me to do as well. Mm-hmm. So when Tina and I discovered we had the same um, idea, the same dream, then though we... <laughs> They've been together ever since for 37 years. Wow. And did you go to college together? Where did you study? We went, the German system is a bit different. We don't have college. We go to a gymnasium, that's mm-hmm. a German type of high school, till you, mm-hmm. at the age of 19 or 20, and then we go straight to university. We studied at Mainz University across the Rhine River, mm-hmm. and I spent my final year as a student at several places in the United States. Okay, okay, and you have very, very good English, both you and your wife speak good English. Well, it's, uh, how to put this? it's good enough to negotiate the, with the taxi driver the price to get the price down. <laughs> <I'm not laughs> right, <laughs> right, okay, so um, you both became qualified as doctors. Did you get married at that point, or were you married before? I finished up as a medical student at Harvard University, in 1987, um, 1987, Tina mm-hmm. came to Boston. We got engaged on Martha's Vineyard, a tiny really? little island off the coast uh-huh. of Massachusetts. And three uh-huh. months later, on the 1st of uh, August, uh, we got married in Germany. Right. And uh, we spent one year in Germany finishing up. Um, I wrote a thesis, so did my wife. And then we went to England for two and a half years. We spent afterwards two years at Yale University, then two years in South Africa, eventually Germany, and it's a bit complicated, but in 2003, we, we went to Peru after having served for five years as missionaries in Ecuador. Oh, right. Okay. And so you were drawn to Peru. In '91, we took a trip as backpackers to Peru. Before mm-hmm. I started, we started at Yale University, we had several months available. So at the time, we had no children, so we had three years. We went there and spent three months traveling back and forth to Peru, but also Bolivia, and obviously wanted to see Machu Picchu and the ancient uh, Inca capital, Cusco, but then we, we encountered so much human suffering high up mm-hmm. in the Andes, in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And the 10 million Quechua people, descendants of the ancient Incas, their houses, adobe houses, clay bricks, and no window glass, um, no electricity, no running water, no sewage system. Mm-hmm. That's how many of them live. And no access to modern mental health care either. And we thought, well, we can do something about it. Let's come back to Peru in the future to build mm-hmm. a hostel for these, um, for these people, a hostel just as nice as a hostel in the United States. Right. And, and it didn't start off as a hospital. You started thinking a medical center, perhaps, and it grew. Tell us about that. Well, we, we served for five years at the Mission Hospital in Ecuador, in 2002, I sat down behind my desk and wrote a project proposal. We did envision a hospital with four operating rooms and uh, ICU, five-bed ICU, labor mm-hmm. delivery, 
and uh, dental suite, uh, outpatient offices, obviously, an X-ray, even a CT scanner, because there was not a single hospital in the state of Apurinok with a CT scanner. And when they written this project um, by June 2002, it became so obvious that it couldn't be done. I mean, who would donate millions of dollars to this project? Yeah. Who would be willing to donate equipment and uh, to to dedicate the best years of his whole life to this missionary work, to, to live in Adobe houses? So, um, well, we, we started a non-profit organization with eight friends, but it was so uncertain that people thought it was just a crazy idea. In mm-hmm. fact, when we started our campaign in 2004, my wife and I, people said, well, You've got so nice photos of Peru, but we're just passing through severe economic crisis. Unemployment rate is high as 10% and higher. And, and you shut in the middle of this crisis, you want to raise millions? It, it can't be done. It's nonsense. And we said, well, of course it is impossible, but if God wants it, it will happen. Exactly. Exactly. And I think you've shown that quite obviously that is exactly what God wanted. Tell us about the money you've raised, the help you've had. Well, looking back uh, on the last 11 years, you know, I've given so far uh, 1,940 presentations in 19 countries, despite the fact that we didn't ask for money, uh, about 50,000 private people have raised $15 million, and 200 companies worldwide have donated in equipment and materials $6.5 million, so $21.5 million uh, the total. And uh, the interesting part is... Uh, why people donated and why companies decided to make the biggest donation of their history to the Ospiciana. Nobody can really explain it well, but just to give you two examples, Siemens, the big German corporation, donated for the very first time ever a CT scanner for hospital in Latin America. I'm sure they will never do it again. And this was despite the fact that the president of Siemens Healthcare didn't want to help. He said it's our policy. We never ever help. But somehow he was persuaded by the director of communications of Siemens Healthcare, and they did it. Um, another company, Trader, they donated four brand new anesthesia machines. And um, the owner of the company and his wife, they are committed atheists. They don't believe in God. And they knew that we are committed Christians. The whole thing, Diospiciana, means we trust in God, in Quechua. It's mm-hmm. a, a very pious matter, you know, that we want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's, you can't explain it really, but so many people and companies joined in uh, helping us and also they disagreed in our worldview. Mm-hmm. They disagreed with your worldview, and let, yet for some reason, I suppose they knew that whatever they were donating was going to be used for the good of mankind. You, 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 were, you were going to use it the way it needed to be used. Yeah, that, that is true. But mm-hmm. uh, when, when the scanner broke down, Seven years later, it was mm-hmm. last year, mm-hmm. we approached Siemens to see whether they would be willing to donate another CT scanner. And the new president of Siemens Healthcare visited our website and realized that we are evangelical Christians. And said, well, they're Christians. I'm atheists. I don't want to do nothing to do with them. We mm-hmm. will not support them. So they didn't donate uh, another CT scanner just by the fact okay. that they're Christians. So did you get, did you get it repaired? No, it, it was not repaired, but I spoke last year at an evangelistic crusade in Germany. It was actually uh, um, broadcasted via satellite to 800 churches. 
and I presented uh, our testimony, and that night about 100,000 people donated the money for a brand new CT scanner. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, Dr. Klaus, we have to go on a really short break. We'll be back in just a few moments and continue our conversation. Thank you very much. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. I'm talking to Dr. Klaus, who is um, here in America talking about um, a hospital, Svisuyana, and it's in the Peruvian um, mountains, um, the Andes. And um, he's telling us how he um, raised the money without asking for any money to build this fabulous hospital, a hospital that you would find um, in Europe or America, and open without debt. That's correct, isn't it? You, you don't have without any debt. debt. Without credit, that's right. It was right. nerve-wracking because when we built this hospital, we had to come up basically on a monthly basis with $100,000. Mm-hmm. And it, we never had to stop the construction. The money came in sometimes on the last day in the last, in the last, in the last minute. But mm-hmm. I tell you, when you live by faith, praying, you, lose a lot, you will lose a lot of sleep at night and you, you start praying very in earnest because you, you get desperate. Yeah. And um, that has been our history from the very beginning. You know, that's why I titled my book, I Have Seen God, because God became visible in that story so many times to, to, to me, to, to our co-workers, but to the whole world. When I was a young man, you know, in Germany, only 4% go to church, and my friends were atheists, agnostics. We had endless discussions, and I became so uncertain of my faith. And I remember one night walking outside, it was November, it was ice cold and the wind was blowing, and I was so desperate, I shouted at the top of my voice, God, where are you? I want to see you. Mm-hmm. And in my life, God became so visible to all these miracles that now I have titled my book, I've Seen God. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, I know a lot of people think that 
if you pray and if you really, really trust in God that things will happen, that you, you should be able to relax. And you're telling me that you would have a lot of sleepless nights because you don't know where the money's coming from. You don't know if you're going to be able to meet the bills that month. But all the time that has happened. And I don't think it matters how many times your prayers are answered. As humans, we just can't help starting to get a little bit anxious when it comes close to the wire. Is that your experience? This has been my experience. Um, yes. Yeah. We, want, we, we, we are so, so afraid sometimes. What will happen next week? Which letter will get to us from the government? You know, the bureaucrats in Peru, they cause so much love with red tape. And um, I, I remember one day in June 2006, we were the hospital under construction. We got a letter from the from, from a government agency. If you took the Agencia Cultural, it's um, they're looking after um, archaeological sites and Inca culture so on. And they said, well, you don't have a license to build a hospital here. You have to stop working. It's illegal. It's over. And uh, basically, this would have been the end of it. And we prayed and prayed. And as it happened, four weeks ago, the first lady of Peru at the time, Pilar Norris Garcia, invited us to her office. She heard our present. She saw the presentation. She was so moved that she decided to become our godmother, our matrina, which means she has to help us when we're in trouble. And as soon as she was on board supporting us officially, well, this government agency pulled back, yeah, and left us in peace. But we have been so, so anxious and desperate many times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yes, you, you've got this red tape and you're, you're working in a foreign country. You're working in a foreign language, having to negotiate, not, not in your native German or even in English. What were you speaking? You're speaking... a lot of people working for you. It's a large hospital. Tell us how large it is. Right now we have 200 people working at the hospital and at our school. Um, this was inaugurated six months ago. 150 Peruvians. We pay salaries, so we're one of the most important employers uh, of the state of Aporimac, plus 55 missionaries. The missionaries come from 12 different countries, and right now we have uh, about 10 uh, uh, missionaries from Canada and the United States. So mm-hmm. it's a big team, and we pay salaries. Patients cover only 20% of our expenditures, and 80% is covered through donations through us or through the missionaries who serve at our hospital. Yes, you, you talked about, um, in one of your other interviews, um, an engineer. You needed an engineer to oversee the building of the hospital for, all, for many years, and yeah, you needed true. a missionary because you couldn't yeah. afford to pay anybody to do that. So tell exactly. us the story so about your engineer. For a long time, just to find somebody to do it, to supervise the construction mm-hmm. as our consulting partner. And um, the, the story is just unbelievable. It, 
was on the 16th of February 2005. I was sitting in my hometown in a, in a private house, and on the desk we had 50 pages of small print, a, design, a contract between the Ostician and the construction company, Total Construction, without mm-hmm. acceptance, so $4 million. And mm-hmm. next to me, sitting there, was a lawyer who was helping me to understand all these legal documents. Mm-hmm. And suddenly this um, lawyer said, well, Dr. John, I'm also a member from a charity crew. We are 25 people. We support an orphanage in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And then he mentioned that, that one of the group, 25 people, one of them had worked previously as a civil engineer. Mm-hmm. And I got so nervous. I asked him, what is his name? Yeah, his name is Udo Clemens. Do you happen to have his telephone number? So he looks in his mm-hmm. bag, he came up with a number, and asked for a little break to make an instant phone call right there and there to this mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Clemens, whom I never had met before in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, as he got on the phone, as I talked to him, I said, well, Mr. Clemens, I heard about you two minutes ago. We want to build a hospital for Ruby, doctors. And as Germans, we are very much straightforward. We, we talk about the issue. We're not, not wasting any time. Yeah. But you run the show for us. You do whatever it takes. And when I called him, he was sitting in his living room with his wife, Barbara, and had prayed for three hours in the morning, God, please give us a special vision for our life. In fact, they started praying three days previously. It was the third day they've been praying. And mm. so when he came to Peru, he supervised construction of the hospital, of a dental clinic, eye clinic, also a kids club, a school. In total, he spent six and a half years serving in Peru without wow. charging. Without a salary. So how do... Tell, tell me how the missionaries are supported. You say you've got 55 missionaries. Are they supported by their churches and by individuals? Yeah, they. everybody has uh, a different form. Some get support from their churches, mm-hmm. colleagues, neighbors, friends, uncle, aunt. As a missionary, you do get some support to pay also um, tuition for your children if necessary, mm-hmm. health insurance. But mm-hmm. you never get money to save money. So, for instance, my wife and I, we have been missionaries now for 15 years. In mm-hmm. these 15 years, we haven't been able to, to save a, a single dollar or euro or penny. So, mm-hmm. it's just a matter of fact, you don't become rich as a missionary if you do it lifelong. But it's obviously a very fulfilling and satisfying yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. And God looks after you. Yeah, and I always say, you know, one miracle. It, it, no, we have experienced God in a real way, in a big time, so many times. One miracle with God is worth $10 million because you appreciate that God is really there, that we're not, um, our faith is not wishful thinking, philosophy, or daydreaming. Our faith is real, and there's nothing better than to have a living relationship with, with Christ and to know for sure it's reality. It's not just hoping. No, it, it, God is next to me. I can't see him, but he's there holding my hands and, and uh, guiding me along. That's the best that can happen to us. Yeah. Now, you say you have children. You have your own family. Tell us a little bit about your family. We have three children. Natalie mm-hmm. was born in South Africa in 1994. We spent two years there serving as, uh, working as residents at the Baraguanas Hospital in Joburg, in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now, she's 20, she has gone back to South Africa and she's serving at a Christian orphanage in KwaZulu-Natal, mm. about two hundred miles away from Durban. Okay. And afterwards, she's thinking, well, she might study medicine. 
She's very bright. Dominic, yeah. he was born in Germany. He's 18, and he's just finishing up gymnasium. And then he can study, and he's thinking, well, he has two options, um, either law or medicine. And our little one, Florian, was born in Ecuador. He's 14. He is with us. And, uh, well, he, he's saying he wants to become a, a multimillionaire. A what? A multimillionaire. A multimillionaire. <laughs> he wants to become very rich. <laughs> Ah, oh, oh, okay. Well, you're going to you you you're going to have some kind of a an entrepreneur on your hands there, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Well, that's that's wonderful. And so you um you kept your children with you, but when they had to go, like you got Dominic, is he in Germany by himself, or is he living with family? How is that working out? He is 18, um, mm-hmm. so he lives in a house that belongs to my sister. Okay. And my yeah. sister, she's sort of looking after him, but he's quite independent. Yeah, yeah. And Natalie, yeah. she, well, she works at the orphanage in Kwasulu uh, Natal. That's run by some English doctors, and there are several young people serving. So she's in a group. She's not by herself. Yeah. yeah. So they're well taken care of. Well, that's wonderful. And two of them may be following in your footsteps because both of you are doctors. God really. and, um, well, I hope that yeah. I hope that God will call them to the mission field. I pray every yes. morning. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we have to go on another short break. And if you could come back just one more time, I want to talk about the kinds of patients who you are seeing in your hospital, the, the kinds of um, medical problems that um, the people that you're serving have that we don't very often see in the West or if How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Get ready to live la bella vita with Dawn Catherine on Toginet.com. Live La Bella Vita. If you're wanting to know all the beauty tricks of the trade and the latest fashion trends before everyone else, this is your show. If you admire celebrities' beauty and their fashion sense, this is your show. Do you love wine and want to know more about the process it takes to make wine from the vine to the bottle? This is your show. Live La Bella Vita. For more on the show and your host... Check out our website, LaBellaVitaCosmetico.com. This is the kind of show you can sink your teeth into. If you enjoy traveling and food and family, all with an Italian flair, then you can live La Bella Vita with your host, Dawn Catherine. Wednesday nights at midnight, 11 p.m. Central, on Toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. The show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Okay, Dr. Klaus, um, I now want to tap into your medical expertise here, and I want you to tell us, because, you know, we're Westerners, and we don't see a lot of the medical problems that are really easy to fix here in the West but can be debilitating for people in the third world. So tell us some of the things that you are seeing as a team and that your hospital deals with on a daily basis. The human body is really the same, no matter whether you live in America, in Europe or in South America. Mm -hmm. So our patients, 
present with the same diseases you have. They have gallstones, they need a cholecystectomy, they have appendicitis, so somebody has to take the appendix out. They need C-sections, they develop pneumonia, bronchitis, skin diseases. So basically they have to present with the same pattern of diseases we see in the Western world, but because of their poverty, mm-hmm. usually present, they present at a late stage of their disease. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes if, if they don't get any medical attention, then they will die of preventable diseases in their houses. So wow. to make matters worse, now this is a train as you can hear. Just oh, I can right. hear it, yes. <laughs> what about That's all right, here? it just makes it so much more real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So, it, you know, they, they, uh, it's very cold in the house because many of them lack window glass. Mm-hmm. So they have, uh, for instance, bronchitis, which can be easily treated, but mm-hmm. if they don't go to the doctor, they might die of bronchitis. And if they're treated, they will go back eventually to the same situation at home with no window glass. So the cycle repeats itself. The same mm-hmm. with worms. Most of the, the catcher people have worms. For parasites. So they have tummy aches, they lose weight, sometimes they have blood in their stool, they have cramps, um, they, the children fail to thrive, they're doing poorly, and obviously this is a great problem. You may think, well, to treat worms, just as you tap it, it's so easy to treat parasites. But mm. since they have no clean water at home, they no. go home, and uh, two months later, that's exactly the same problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and what about vaccines? Do you offer vaccines there? In, in any Peruvian town, there's a Peruvian health center run by the government, and okay. they do vaccinations, so we stay out of it, mm-hmm. um, which is good. So in, in, in that respect, the Peruvian system works quite nicely. The same as far as deliveries are concerned. It's offered for free for any, uh, for any woman. Mm-hmm. We get complicated deliveries if um, ladies need C-sections, then mm-hmm. they're sent to our hospital. Otherwise, okay. uh, the straightforward routine is done at local health centers. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Mercy Ships. Yes, of course. Yes. Yes. And they, yes. they have mm-hmm. a lot of, like, cleft palate is, is one of the, is a big thing. And um, complications through um, giving women giving birth and uh, being in labor for too long, causing them to, you know, be expelled from their villages. And these are all simple, simple well, I don't know if cleft palate is really simple, but they can be really disfiguring. And um, I just wondered if, if you, um, you know, come across those kinds of diseases and illnesses and deformities too? We, um, r- right now we have 10 different departments running. Okay. So we have a very nice uh, general surgeon. Mm-hmm. We have a gynecologist, a midwife, uh, pediatricians, uh, family practitioners, and obviously people working in anesthesia and our dental clinic, eye clinic. Um, so it's, and we, we try to maintain these 10 departments always. So we don't mm-hmm. really work with short-term missionaries. We always try to, to get support from people willing to dedicate three years or five years of their life to, to our ministry. So it's quite stable. Um, okay. There are many mission hostels around the world that rely heavily on short-termers who come for a week or two. But yeah. then the service is very sketchy. Well, this week yeah. you can do operations, and next week there's nobody. So yeah. our goal was always just a 
well-maintained um, hospital that always runs like a hospital in America, on Europe, and you can mm-hmm. offer reliable service day and night. Right. And, and you said that people come from all over Peru to come to your hospital. That is absolutely true. We have, the, in fact, statistics that 25 states in Peru and our patients have come from 25 states. Just six months ago, the current Peruan president, Olian Tomale, he's a left-wing politician, but he landed with his helicopter on our property. Um, wow. He walked through the hospital with us, and that morning I'd asked, you know, at church service, we have a church service every morning, I'd asked, mm-hmm. where do you come from? And mm-hmm. it turned out that our patients that day had come from eight different states. Wow. And there was, was quite a message to this left politician that we as Christians are serving the poor who come from all over the country mm-hmm. to this um, hospital. On their way to a hospital, they pass by several government hospitals. That's the interesting part of it. If they travel mm-hmm. from the north of Peru, they will be traveling for three, four, five days till they get to our hospital. Wow. And since we just have 10 Christian doctors, sometimes they sleep outside hoping to get in the next day or the, the day after. Mm. But the Christian is well known in Peru through 20, to, to more than 30 television shows. And they call us officially El Hospital de la Fe, the hospital built on faith. So that's why it has become really a, a hope, a symbol of hope for, for millions of people. Mm. Now, you say you have 200 employees, 55 of them are missionaries. You salar- yeah. They're salaried employees. Are these, are these the doctors and nurses that you're talking about? We pay 150 salaries on a monthly basis. Okay. And um, as I said, 80% of our expenditures is covered by donation. Yeah. So yeah. theoretically, we, there's no, never a guarantee that um, we'll have enough money next year or in two years. No. Yeah. So yeah. It's a, as a faith hospital, uh, as a faith ministry, we really rely on God. Um, yeah. and, and if God, well, it would be very easy uh, for God to stop the work, no money, and then it's over. But for seven years, the hospital has been up and running. We had never, tr- we never rejected a poor patient so far, and right. we've seen 144,000 patients up to now. We wow. could have seen more patients, we had more doctors. It all comes down on the number of doctors available that serve at the hospital. And so in order to um, offer help to you and your hospital, it's not only money, people can actually offer their time and their service, correct? Yes. And 55 people do it right now. Yeah, yeah. If the long-term missionaries, they come to Peru or they go to Costa Rica, Mm-hmm. They study Spanish at school. It takes them six months, eight months, up to a year. And then they move to Kuravasi, up in the mountains. They have to look for housing. Many times they have to renovate the house. And uh, then they serve uh, two or three years um, till they eventually return home uh, to, to their home country. Some have decided to stay with us lifelong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're traveling right now. Um, where are you going from here? You say you're in Colorado. You're going to be speaking at a church tonight, this evening. Then then what's happening? I know you're spending Thanksgiving with some friends of yours. Yes, uh, with Rob Fisher, with Dr. Fisher. He came to 
took quite a while two years ago to serve mm-hmm. in anesthesia. Mm-hmm. I will spend Thanksgiving with him. I will give talks at Loma Linda University in Los Angeles. And then I'm driving up to, to the San Francisco to give more talks. And then four weeks uh, will have come to a close. I started on the 1st of November in Grand Rapids. And I will mm-hmm. finish um, my tour in San Francisco in next, um, next Monday. And then you heading back to Peru? Back to Peru, yes. I will see my yes. wife and my son Florian on the 2nd of December. And over Christmas, our son Dominic is coming from Germany. And my sister Helga as well. It yes. definitely won't be with us. She's in South Africa. She will stay there and celebrate Christmas with her um, with her friends. And so, what what does Christmas look like in Peru? We will go. We will have a, a church service for the missionaries on mm-hmm. the 24th in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, the Germans will celebrate in their families on the 24th in the evening, Holy Night. Yes. That's German tradition. Mm-hmm. And the Americans among us, they will celebrate on the 25th. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. everybody will continue in his or her tradition. But it will okay. be lovely with the children to spend uh, a few days off. We will, the hospital is, will be closed. We will check okay. the emergencies. Yeah. And I hope that we have then time for our kids. All right. Well, Dr. Klaus, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been talking to Dr. Klaus Dieter-John about his work in Peru. To find out more and how you can help them, Google easily hospital in Peru or even more easily go to the Sociable Homeschooler, which is my website, or my Toginet radio page where I will have the link both to the Dios Bisuyana and his book, I Have Seen God. Dr. Klaus, thank you for joining me and sharing your remarkable story of how you and your wife answered Christ's call to make a change in the world, both by your actions and your examples. Have a safe journey back to Peru, and may God continue to be with you in your endeavors. But it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for this, for this talk. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Um, That kind of story is really compelling, don't you agree? The thing I liked most about Dr. Klaus was his humanness. Despite God's obvious support of the massive undertaking he and his wife had embarked upon, he still had many sleepless nights. Trusting in God doesn't mean sitting back and watching him do the work. It means getting up and being God's ears, eyes, hands and feet on earth. You heard Dr. Klaus say that talking to people around the world for six months of the year is now part of his ministry. He speaks outside churches to many who don't go to church. He speaks in auditoriums and halls to Christians and atheists alike. I'm reminded of an Old Testament story about Nehemiah, chapter 2. The cup-bearer to King Artaxerxes, who noticed his servant was depressed one day and asked him why. Nehemiah's explanation elicited a favorable response from the king, who asked him point-blank, What can I do for you? Nehemiah outlined the demise of his city, Judah, and asked to be dispatched with men and letters for materials to rebuild it. And Artaxerxes, the pagan king, sent him off with everything he needed to rebuild his city. Dr. Klaus found similar situations opening up before him, and on listening to his stories, I am shown how great God is. Dr. Klaus's book, I Have Seen God, certainly... Um, attests to the fact that God is with Dr. Klaus and his project. 
We may be around our own pagans at work in our daily lives, but we have no idea how God is going to use them in our lives. Is trusting God easy? Is it stressful? Does it mean you'll sleep well at night? If we're to be God's ministers on earth, we have to work hard beside the greatest worker of them all. If God wants something done, then it will be done. Acts 5.39 says, If it's from God, you'll not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourself fighting against God. I know Dr. Klaus's story is going to make me think harder about how much work I'm putting into furthering the kingdom of God on earth. How about you? A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how frantic I was when I started my homeschooling career, how I found it difficult to let go of the mindset that my children had to be constructively employed every minute of the day in order to be fulfilled. And after four years, I decided to begin the process of slowing down, but I found I couldn't go cold turkey after years of scheduling activities that I'd been brainwashed into thinking were essential to my children's well-being. Pulling the plug on everything... By this I mean all the activities I had them enrolled in to fill their hours was not going to happen. I had dreadful visions of my children following me around the house all afternoon and evening, whining about having nothing to do and finding myself harnessed to the responsibility of entertaining them and filling their time productively, leaving myself with no time for me. I needed time for me. I don't know why it took so long to dawn on me that my children too may need some time to themselves to spread their wings without any restrictions. I decided first things first. I'd analyze my children's after-school activities first and look with my new eyes of being and decide whether I considered the activity to be enriching or constricting, both for my children and for myself. I used as my criteria programs that would enhance qualities we were already offering at home, such as self-awareness and confidence. At this time, the two boys had been completely immersed in gymnastics for four years. The whole culture of the gym had a firm grip on me. This was where I first met my well-heeled stranger, and the seed of homeschooling was sown. I noticed that competitiveness was a major component to this sport. I'm not a competitive person at heart, at least not to the extent that I participate in any sports to win. I enjoy the fun of the activity and what it does to build a team mentality, especially since I enjoy very isolated pursuits like reading and writing on my own time. The boys were good gymnasts. They showed coordination and discipline, not far removed from the ballet I'd grown up with. And until my moment of decision and change-making, they, well, we really, because as the parents we were their only form of transportation, had, to had participated only in small events and local meets every once in a while. Now, however, coinciding with my quest for reinforcement of home-based qualities, we were given the news that a boys' team was being formed at the gym. Ian and Simon, we were told, were on it. I found myself trapped. My brave plan to spring them from the constraints of a chalk-filled indoor gym was being thwarted by the young, arrogant and insensitive coaches who were boldly making decisions without my sons and their about my sons and their whereabouts that were directly affecting both my checkbook and our family time. And I had no say-so. Initially, I was flattered because both the boys seemed to enjoy themselves and they were keeping fit, limber, out of trouble and doing something I couldn't offer at home. Also, a hidden extra. The gym had been good to us during our financial crises, paying it forward generously. Now I was beginning to understand my parents' dislike of beholdenness. It was making me feel helpless. 
My boys are exchanging. <coughs> My boys are exchanging their talents for fees. Damage to the bank account was minimal, and my lack of input about my boys' futures was pushed to the back of my mind. I told myself the qualities I was looking for—self awareness and confidence—were being met adequately on the parallel bars and vault. My trusty cowboy and I further determined that as our children grew older, there were going to be certain things we could not control if we were to become enriched as a family. And I will continue with the ending of that story in a couple of weeks. For now, a little more about our new apartment or flat. We've had all the children over, some more than others. My teacher daughter can just zoom up the road from her apartment, and she does a couple of times a week at least, and we visit her. My、um, younger daughter comes over to cook with us. That's very pleasant, and sometimes we go over to her place. My in-laws came. They're literally just around the corner. They're probably about five minutes away. As is one of my friends that I minister to. She's exactly seven minutes away. And、um, my my mother-in-law came over, and she looked in every room, every closet, and every drawer. I don't have much yet. Rather like when we first moved into our large house thirty years ago. I was on the phone to my mother, and I told her there's a lot of cupboard space in here, and most of it is empty. And she said to me, "Not for long," and she was right. Although it did take a few years to fill it up. And I've come to the end of another show, my first show of the new year. I hope you have a very happy first weekend in 2015. I'm catching up with some work on my social media. Always boring, but necessary. We've got dinner tonight with the happy birthday girl, Malia. I can hardly believe you're 23 already. All my children are in their twenties. Everyone, go easy on the resolutions. Try to add things like smiling at someone you don't know、uh, to your daily routine. Thank you for listening to the Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNenny, and I'll be back same time, same place next Friday. Without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband, who believes in love at first sight. Our four children, who are the result of that belief, the hardworking staff at TogiNet Radio, my producer Casey, my guest this week, Dr. Klaus Dieter John, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Hannah, Joel, Anne, Rosemary, Kathleen, Esme, Millicent, Margaret, Jacob, Walter, Jane, Olivia. Tina and oodles of others who are part of my growing audience. Stay tuned all the time and catch lots of great shows to help you through your day. Take care and be safe. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you His kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Doop, doop, doop. Thank you for joining us for the Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNenny on Toginet. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who are willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So, we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNenny. Friday afternoons at five, four central on Toginet.com.